And as you're turning there, a question for you. Um, do you know what first world problems are? Has anyone heard that before? A first world problem? So this will help you. First world countries are countries that are developed and industrialized. They have stable economies. They have stable governments. First world countries really have a high standard of living that's spread across most of their population. That's a first world country. So if that's a first world country, you might piece together what a first world problem is. First world problems are good problems to have. They can be such good problems to have that they can sound ridiculous to complain about. So when you complain, man, the internet here is really slow today. That's a first world problem. (laughs) When you pull up to your house and you hit the garage door opener and it doesn't work. That's a first world problem. When you're on vacation and you say something like this, something I've probably said before too, I need a vacation from this vacation. That's a first world problem. Now, first world problems aren't to say that people in first world countries don't have real and difficult problems. The point is, is that you and I can be put in the best of circumstances and we'll still find a way to complain and to grumble. Whether you're in the first world or in the third world, the problem isn't first with our circumstances. The problem is first with us and our hearts. You and I have an endless capacity to grumble, an endless capacity to lack gratitude for the gifts that are right in front of us. Take it from me. Just this past summer, Kate's family took us on a cruise on the Mediterranean Sea. Believe it or not, you can find ways to grumble. Even when you're on a cruise ship with unlimited food in some of the most beautiful places in the world. Yes. So in John 6, verses 41 to 49, we see this same capacity for grumbling on full display. Here in this passage, Jesus himself is right in front of people. There is no greater gift than him the son of God who came from heaven to reconcile us to the father, to, for, to die for our sins. Here he is right in front of them. And what do we see the people doing? They grumble instead of have gratitude. Yet still in John 6, 41 to 59, not only is grumbling on full display, God's grace is also on full display. You see, friend, there is hope for grumblers like you and me. If Jesus didn't die for grumblers, he'd have nobody to die for. So, fellow grumbler, come with me and let's take a look at God's grace that he gives in Christ, that he can turn grumblers into believers. John 6, 41 to 59. After I read this, I invite you to follow along as I read. I invite you also, please, friend, Keep this passage open our entire time together. It's a way that you can check that everything that we say here is from God's word. John 6, 41 to 49, after I'm done reading, I'll say something like, this is God's word. If you are thankful to God for his word, would you say with me, thanks be to God. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. If we were to summarize this passage in one main idea, we could summarize it like this. See the gift in front of you and believe in Jesus, the true bread from heaven who gives us life by giving his life. And if you believe, praise God, because you did not draw yourself to Christ, God did. Now, as we were reading, if you paid close attention, you probably have plenty of questions about this passage. And if you paid close attention, you might have noticed something else as well. While this is a back and forth conversation, there's a lot of repetition. So like in a lot of conversations that you and I have, you often have to circle back to something and clarify what you said. We see that going on here. While there is some progression, while this conversation does build on itself a little bit, there's also some repetition. And so that's going to reflect how we go, up, go through this passage together. We'll see two rounds of grumbling and two rounds of Jesus's response to that grumbling. So round one, people grumble about who Jesus is. Round one, people grumble about who Jesus is. Now, just to give us a little bit of a running start, a review from last week, this section we're in today is part of the section we were in last week. So the people who witnessed Jesus feed this massive crowd with a tiny amount of food, the feeding of the 5,000, they have followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and ended up in this city called Capernaum, which, was, which had become Jesus's home base. And so as they seek out Jesus and Jesus sees them approaching him, Jesus sees right through them. We notice that. Jesus sees right through them. They seek him in a very shallow way. They don't care about him. They just care about the stuff that he can give them. So he tells them, stop prioritizing the temporary earthly things you're seeking and seek me first. He tells them to seek him on his terms, not on their terms. So he tells them this, and when they don't understand and when they refuse to seek him, Jesus doesn't lose heart. That's the last thing we noticed last week. Jesus remains confident even when people don't seek him. He knows that there are people who will believe in him and he's confident that the people who will believe in him will stay with him. And Jesus' confidence is, is not rooted in people, it's rooted in God and God's sovereign plan. 
That's kind of where we were. Now, as we come to verse 41, it seems like a new group has taken over. Previously, John has used the label uh, for the group that's been interacting with Jesus. He's called them the crowd. Look at, you can look at chapter six, verse 22. But now in verse 41, he uses a new label. He labels the group that interacts with Jesus as the Jews. Now, previously, this label referred to Jewish religious leaders. And since this conversation here happened in the synagogue in Capernaum, as verse 59 tells us, then it might be the leaders of the synagogue who are now talking with Jesus. But the leaders of the synagogue aren't talking, are they? What are they doing? They're grumbling. And what are they grumbling about? Well, it, it could just mean, the word grumble could just mean whisper, but the content of it shows their attitude. They are they're grumbling. They, they don't take offense so much at the symbolism that Jesus is like bread. No, they get offended at Jesus's origin, at what he claims. They get offended at Jesus's claims about who he is and where he comes from. So maybe you could, we could put ourselves in their shoes or in their sandals and picture other things they might have said to Jesus here in the synagogue in Capernaum. They look at Jesus saying that he comes from heaven. And they, they tell Jesus, we saw you come to the synagogue when you were a kid with your parents. We, we remember, we, we watched you grow up. You, you worked on our houses, your dad and your brothers. Do you really think that you're better than us, Jesus? You're just like the rest of us Galileans. Who are you to say that you come from heaven? Well, what's happening here is, as they're grumbling is that Jesus doesn't match up with what they expect. Jesus doesn't match up and align with what they like and what they value. You see, this crowd that's interacting with Jesus, they're overconfident. They're overconfident in their own evaluation. They're overconfident in their own perspective, their own knowledge. They're overconfident in their own preferences. And it's a lesson for us. Friends, if, if you want to know who Jesus is, but you rely only on your own knowledge and your own evaluation and your own preferences, as you won't know who Jesus is. You'll just know yourself. Maybe you, maybe you remember a, a scene from this movie. It's the movie called Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby is a NASCAR driver, and Ricky sits around the dinner table with his, uh, with his family and his one friend, and Ricky prays to six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus. And he prays to him because that's the Jesus he says that he likes best. And this leads to a conversation, and everybody around the table says, or no, this is, the, this is how I like to picture Jesus. And the conversation is meant to be satirical. It's meant to be ridiculous. But I think in a way it's meant to show us we do the exact same thing. We, we define Jesus ourselves. We define Jesus based on our own knowledge, based on our own preferences. But here's the thing again, if your version of Jesus never disagrees with you, never confronts you, then you're not really serving Jesus, are you? You're serving a version of yourself. What we should acknowledge that our knowledge is limited. Our preferences are twisted and biased. So we should take the lesson from this crowd that instead of starting with our terms, we should start with, what, with God's terms. Instead of starting with what we say who God is, we should start with what God has said about himself. 
Hebrews chapter one says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So here they are, these Jewish religious leaders, they grumble about who Jesus is and where he claims to come from. And how does Jesus respond to them? Well, his response contains a word about our inability, a word about his incomparability, and a word about our responsibility. First, a word about our inability. Look again at verse 43. Jesus says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Now, if you, were, if you and I were de- designing Jesus's response, I don't know if this is where we would start <laughs> with trying to convince people to come to him, saying, no, listen, guys, you are unable to come to me. <laughs> so why start here? Well, I think he starts here because it's, he's telling them, your grumbling won't get you anywhere. You need to know more than just my earthly father. You need my heavenly father. He must draw you to me. He must teach you. Your grumbling won't get you anywhere. And Jesus's statement here extends beyond just this crowd in front of him. It extends to us as well. Look again at verse 44. This is a strong statement. It's a universal statement. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. If you think about it, this is the negative counterpart to verse 37. If you look back up to there, where Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come to me. Here he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So if you put these together, then the picture you get is like this, that the Father gives certain people to the Son and then draws them to believe in the Son. We are unable to come to Jesus unless the Father draws us. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, maybe we can clarify just a little bit about what our inability means. And I think we get a clue with the word draw. Just give me a second, we'll get there. Our inability is more than just we can't come to Jesus. No, it's it's more than that. It's on our own, we can't come to Jesus because we won't come to Jesus. That is the root of our inability. We can't come to Jesus because we won't come to Jesus. We see that in that word draw in verse 44. On our own, we have no interest in Jesus. God must draw us. On our own, we prefer ourselves. We prefer other stuff. Romans 3 verse 11 says, there is no one who seeks after God. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, all of us like sheep, have gone astray, each one of us, to our own way. Our inability is more than just we can't come to Jesus. It's that we can't because we won't. So if there is any hope that I won't turns into I will, that hope can't come from us. It has to come from God. If there's any hope that I won't will turn into I will come to Jesus, that has to come from God, not us. I love this word, draw. God draws us. Jesus does not say, no one can come to me unless the father drags him to me. 
he draws us. He awakens within us a desire to come to Jesus. So we'll, we'll revisit kids' time a little bit. Who are my coffee drinkers in the room? Anybody? Great. Amen. These are, these are really my people. You, I, I like you all. But uh, my coffee drinkers in the room, did you always like coffee? No, me neither. Uh, for a while, even coffee wasn't, just, it wasn't on my radar at all. It's not that I, even not that I didn't like it. I was just ambivalent toward it. I didn't really know it existed. But then once I did try it, I didn't like it. I wasn't just ambivalent toward it. I had an aversion to coffee. I was like my friend Ryan, who still hasn't seen the coffee light. He calls coffee bitter bean juice. But over time, my aversion to coffee turned into an appetite for coffee. I was drawn by coffee's aroma. I tasted and it was good. You and I have a natural ambivalence and aversion to Jesus. No desire for him, don't want to come to him, but the father draws us to Jesus by giving us a new appetite so that now we desire to come to Jesus. So we are unable, but God draws us. So this inability that you can't because you won't, Jesus says this inability has always been a problem. Back when God gave his people the law summarized in the 10 commandments, God intended for his people to follow this law and thereby reflect what he is like to the world around them. But is that what happened? No, of course not. That's because the people needed more than just new rules. The people needed new hearts. So in John 6, verse 45, Jesus summarizes the promise that God made through the Old Testament prophets. God promised to give his people new hearts to teach them and to awaken in them new appetites and new desires. And the result of these new appetites and desires is that people will come to Jesus. So let's meet the rubber with the road. Friend, if you're not a Christian, if you have not clearly crossed the line from trusting and following yourself to trusting and following Jesus, you might wonder, how does it help me to know about my inability? <laughs> well, friend, if what Jesus is saying is true, then what's left for you to do is to acknowledge it. To say to him, yes, Lord, I know that on my own, I do not want you. I know that on my own, I won't come to you. And that's exactly why I need you. I need you to give me a new heart with a new appetite for you. The crucified and risen son of God. But if you pray that prayer, that is God already at work drawing you. My friend, if you have believed in Jesus, have surrendered your life to him, I wonder what do you think of John chapter six, verse 44? How have you interacted with that verse? I'm not saying that you can never wrestle with questions, but I am saying if you take God at his word, then, then you couldn't, that you couldn't come to Christ on your own, but that he drew you in. If you take God at his word, shouldn't that lead you first to a deep and humble gratitude? Shouldn't that lead you to say, it wasn't my wisdom, it wasn't my own schemes that got me to come to Jesus, it was God. Shouldn't that lead you to give all the glory to God for your salvation? And it was, he did it, not me. And friends, if, if you take John six forty four as it is, shouldn't that lead you to hope that if God is the one who draws people to Jesus and he drew you to Jesus, don't you think that he can do that for other people in your life who don't yet follow Jesus? So we can't come to Jesus because we won't come to Jesus. Therefore, God must draw us. 
The next part of Jesus's response is a word about his incomparability. His incomparability. The one the father draws us to believe in is incomparable. Verse 46. Jesus's knowledge of God, Jesus's experience of God, Jesus's relationship with God is incomparable. No one else has it. Not even Moses. Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 says Moses spoke with God face to face. But Moses didn't have the complete unhindered knowledge of God that Jesus has. So it works like this. God the Father and Jesus the Son work in tandem. God draws us and teaches us for us to come to Jesus. And Jesus shows us who the Father is. He is incomparable. Jesus can't be compared, he says, to the original manna in the wilderness. Maybe we could put his words in, in our own words. He tells them, guys, it should be obvious. The people who ate the original manna, are they still around? No, they needed something more. They, they all died. The book of Hebrews reflects this theme that, that we need something better than what the Old Testament has. And that bet, what the Old Testament points to is Jesus. The book of Hebrews talks about the priests who represented the people to God. And the, those priests themselves had to make offerings for their own sin. So the book of Hebrews says, here is Jesus, the priest, who doesn't need to do that, who has no sin to make an offering for. He's the better priest. The book of Hebrews talks about the animal sacrifices that God's people had to make day after day and year after year. And then it points to Jesus. It says, here is a full and final once for all sacrifice. The better priest, the better sacrifice. And here Jesus is saying, the better bread from heaven. He doesn't just sustain physical life for another day. He gives eternal life. Jesus is incomparable. Christian, maybe you're like me, and if you get into conversations about the gospel, conversations about who Jesus is and what he has done, what it means to believe in him, conversations just about anything spiritual, you might not know what to say. You might be discouraged and easily timid. Well, if Jesus is incomparable, then maybe you could say something like this. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. And if you believe that, why don't you say that with me? There is no one like Jesus. Maybe that's something that you could say to a friend. There is no one like Jesus. No, one, no other mediator between God and man. No other savior. No other perfect life. No other perfect sacrifice. He is incomparable. There is no one like him. So the religious leaders grumble about who Jesus is, where he claims to come from. Jesus asserts their inability. They don't need their grumblings. They need the Father's grace so that they can come to him. He also asserts his incomparability. The one they come to is unique. There is none like him. And to close round one, he also asserts their responsibility. So how does Jesus tell them that they should respond to him? What are they responsible to do? We'll look at verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. They are responsible to respond by believing. Now, I wonder if you're wondering the same thing I am. How can Jesus tell them to believe when he's just told them they're unable to believe? How can they be responsible for something that they supposedly can't do? It's a good question, isn't it? When it comes down to this, who is to blame for their inability? Who is to blame for our inability? Is it God or is it us? It's, it's us. Our inability is due to our sin. To quote author Ian Murray, 
If responsibility were to be measured by ability, then it would mean that the more sinful a man becomes, the less he is responsible. If you think about it, because the more sinful you become, the less you're able to control yourself. That can't mean that you're all of a sudden less responsible for your actions. God must draw us to Christ and we are responsible to come to Christ. We are saying those statements aren't in contradiction. They are compatible. That's what theologians have referred to to this as, compatibilism. God's sovereignty in drawing sinners to Christ is compatible with, not in contradiction to, our responsibility to come to Christ. I'll say it again. God's sovereignty to draw sinners to Christ is compatible with our responsibility to come to Christ. Like we've seen already, God doesn't drag us to Jesus. He changes our heart and draws us so that we ourselves desire to come to Jesus. I've heard it explained like this. Maybe everybody take a look at that back door right there, okay? Those, instead of those panes of glass there, picture a verse on the first side of that door, a verse like verse 47, which says, whoever believes has eternal life. To believe is to respond and to open that door and walk on the other side. And then when you get on the other side, then you turn around and see the back side of that door. And instead of the glass, you see the verse like verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. We see our responsibility on the front side. We see God's sovereignty on the back side. So friend, if you're not a Christian, your responsibility is to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God. He is the only one who can give you eternal life. And friend, if you're not a Christian, I want you to see the beauty of verse 47. Look at what it says. Jesus doesn't say to those who believe in him that they will eventually have eternal life. He doesn't say that those who believe in him will get to earn eternal life little by little. Oh, what does he say? He says those who believe in him have eternal life right now in the present. And friend, if you believe, it will become clearer and clearer that you did that only because God drew you in. Brother and sister here, Jesus is emphatic about our need for the Father to draw us to him. But Jesus is just as emphatic about our responsibility to come to him. So this is what this means, that compatibilism extends to evangelism. Let me explain. God's work to draw sinners to Christ is compatible with, not in contradiction to, our work to call sinners to come to Christ. God's work to draw sinners to Christ does not negate our responsibility to speak to other people about faith in Christ. It strengthens us in that responsibility. Because without God's work, no one would ever come to Christ. Our efforts would be futile. So we might be tempted to think about these verses. Like if God has chosen people and if he's the one who draws them in, if he's gonna save who he's gonna save, then I'll just let him do his thing. Stay on the sideline. Well, friend, that would be a misunderstanding of this and a misapplication because God hasn't just ordained the outcomes. He's ordained the ways to bring about the outcomes. He has ordained the outcome of drawing people to Christ through the way of his people speaking about Christ. So let God's sovereign work bolster your confidence, not put you on the sideline. This should strengthen our confidence to reflect Jesus and call everyone and everyone to believe in him. 
So the one we believe in is the bread of life. By the close of verse 51, Jesus begins to define further how he gives life to the world. He gives life by giving his flesh. So this statement prompts round two of grumbling. We'll go through it more quickly. Verse 52 says, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So once again, in Jesus's response in this second round, there is a word about our inability, his incomparability and our responsibility. A word about our inability. Let's look at verse 53. It says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, I know you're really interested in the first part of that but you're just gonna have to hold on just a little bit longer, all right? I wanna start with the end before we start with the beginning. Let those last few words sink in. You have no life in you. Jesus, this is, this is Jesus's evaluation of every single person. He pulls no punches. You could jump ahead to verse 58. You and I face what the people in Exodus faced, death. If we can think about this, what, what the Bible has to say about death, the Bible says that death is our wage. It is a court sentence. It's not just a natural thing that happens to humans. It is a, not just a human problem, it is a sin problem. We have no life in us because our sin has separated us from the God above us. But this sentence is more than just a physical death. It is an eternal death. We have sinned against an eternal God and we face eternal judgment Jesus has said a few times, if you've paid attention, that he will raise up those who believe in him on the last day. But he also says in verse 50 that those who believe in him won't die. So how do we square those two things away? Well, I think we get help if we flip back a couple chapters to chapter five, verses 28 to 29. There Jesus says, I'm going to raise up everybody. Those who believe will be raised to eternal life. Those who are still in their sins will be raised to eternal judgment or eternal death. So here what Jesus is saying is that he won't save us from physical death. He will save us from eternal death. But it gets even worse. What Jesus is saying here is that it's more than just we have no life in us. He's saying we are unable to give life to ourselves. What he's saying is that the only way we have life is through him And if you think about it, if our situation was not this bad, then why would Jesus have to come to earth in the first place? We have no life in us. We are unable to give life to ourselves. I wonder, friend, how have you responded to this death sentence that all of us have? How have you responded to your death sentence? Not just your physical death, how have you responded to your eternal death sentence? I know it's not a nice thing to think about, is it? I mean, think about the way that we handle funerals. We don't even like the presence of death at a funeral. We have to make the person look like as if he or she is still alive. We can't even say the word death at a funeral. We have to say things like a celebration of life. I'm not saying to be disrespectful. I'm not saying that either of those things are automatically bad, but... I do think that those are among the ways that we skirt around what we know about ourselves. We skirt around that we know we have no lasting life in us, like Jesus says. That we know we are unable to save ourselves from death. 
that the best that we can do is to dress it up or to avoid it. So here is one who has the boldness to say, I give eternal life. Friend, how have you responded to your death sentence? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I think of the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563. It opens with a related question. What is our only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a word about our inability. We have no life in ourselves. We are unable to give life to ourselves. But how does Jesus give us life? Well, this is a word about his incomparability. Jesus gives life unlike anything else because of his flesh and his blood. He repeats that over and over again. He says in verse 55, his flesh is true food, his blood is true drink. Now, since we know the whole story, when we read of Jesus's flesh and blood, we should think of Jesus's death on the cross where his flesh was broken, where his blood was spilled. But even for the people here in the Capernaum synagogue, when they would hear blood, they would associate it in the Bible. Anytime blood is mentioned, it's mentioned with a violent death. So put this together. This is what Jesus is saying to them. I give life through my death. Jesus came from heaven, took on flesh to become human in order to give his flesh to be broken for humans. Jesus came to stand in our place. Jesus came to receive our death sentence. And Jesus is able to bear it all, not only because Jesus is truly human, but because Jesus is truly God. Verse 57, he has life in himself just as the father has. So this one who is truly God, God the son, added a truly human nature so that he can die in our place and give us life. Jesus is incomparable. There is no other qualified savior. There is no one else who can stand in our place. There is no one else who can bear all that we deserve. You know, our inability serves only to magnify his incomparability. Jesus came from heaven for people who had no desire for him, for people who had no life within them, for people who stood condemned to eternal judgment, for people who grumbled about him, for people who would kill him. That's who he came for. He is incomparable. As the psalm puts it, there is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Now to close out round two, within Jesus's response to the religious leaders disputing is a word about our inability, his incomparability, and our responsibility. How does he want us to respond to the truth that we can't give life to ourselves, but he gives life through his death? How does he want us to respond He tells us to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Maybe this is the moment you've been waiting for. (laughs) I think the key question becomes, is Jesus speaking literally or symbolically? Now we have to be careful because what we could do, what we don't want to do is that if there's any part of the Bible that we don't like, we could just say, oh, this is just symbolic and metaphorical. We do not want to do that. We want to have good reason to see that the author intends to be symbolic, not just assert that on itself. So is Jesus speaking literal, literally or symbolically when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, our Roman Catholic friends conclude that Jesus speaks literally. This provides one basis of their view of communion or, their, or the Lord's Supper. This view is called transubstantiation. This is the view that the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper actually become the body and the blood of Jesus. 
This is the view that God imparts Christ's death to us little by little as we continually take communion. And I want to submit humbly that this is a wrong way to read the passage. When Jesus says to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, this is a symbolic way of saying to believe in him. When Jesus says to eat his flesh and drink his blood, this is a symbolic way to believe in him. Real quick, I think we say that for at least four reasons, four quick reasons. Reason one, a symbolic way, is because Jesus has already established how he wants us to respond. He's already established how he wants us to respond. I want to show you this. Compare verse 40 with verse 54. Verse 40 says, everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Aren't these almost exactly the same? So verse 54 is a symbolic way of restating the truth. Verse 40 has already established. Eating and drinking are symbols of faith. We use eating and drinking as symbols or metaphors all the time. What do we say to a little baby who's got chubby cheeks? I just want to eat you up. How do we get somebody to come and enjoy a sunset with us? We say, oh, come over and come over and look at the sunset and just drink it all in. Eating and drinking are some symbolic ways of saying, believe in me. Truth has already been established. Jesus is speaking literally. Reason two, Jesus using something physical as a symbol for something spiritual has been a pattern in the gospel of John. A symbol of something, uh, spirit, using something physical as a symbol for something spiritual is a pattern in John. Time and again, people mess this up. So when, Nic- when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, what does Nicodemus respond? He thinks, oh, I have to get back in my mom's womb again. He misunderstands a physical sign for a spiritual reality. When Jesus tells a Samaritan woman at the well, I have living water that I can give you. She misunderstands. She thinks Jesus literally has an unlimited reservoir of physical water. This has been a pattern in John. Reason number three, Jesus speaks symbolically, not literally. Because if Jesus called us literally to eat his flesh and drink his blood, if that was the case, then Jesus would be contradicting the Bible. Jesus would be contradicting the Bible. The Bible's very clear that people are not to drink blood, let alone eat people. Why would one, who, one like Jesus who cared so much about adhering to the Bible contradict a clear command of the Bible? Further, the Bible is very clear that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one may boast. If we had to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood, this would be a work by which we are saved. Last reason, number four, why this is symbolic, not literal. If Jesus called us literally to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he would be contradicting himself. Jesus has already said in verse 29 that the work of God is to believe in him. When you think about it, if all you needed to do was eat and drink, then you don't need to believe to do that. You don't need faith to do that. You could just do it and then you're good. You could do that and your heart can remain unchanged. Oh, friend, let me warn you that this type of religious ritualism is actually really attractive. And it's not limited to Catholicism either. You can falsely assure yourself with outward actions and yet still live however you want. Jesus wants our hearts. 
we believe in him, we trust in him, we worship him, and from that we live for him. So eat his flesh, drink his blood. That is a symbolic way to believe in him. And Jesus emphasizes this so much because he wants to remind us of who it is they believe in. They don't just believe in an insightful teacher. They don't just believe in a moral example. They believe in a sacrifice, in a substitute. We believe that Jesus laid down his life in the place of grumblers and sinners like us. That Jesus laid down his life in the place of those who had no life. Friends, we don't just believe in Jesus vaguely. Believe in this Jesus specifically. Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen again. Jesus Christ whose flesh was torn and blood was spilled so that all those who trust in him would have their sins forgiven and be reconciled to God forever. Believe in this Jesus and rejoice. Because this passage gives us a full display of our sin and our grumbling, but an even fuller display of God's grace. Jesus is God's grace to ungrateful and stubborn people like us. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than every sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we come to you with praise that there is no one like you. God, we were unable to save ourselves. We are in a situation that we could give ourselves no life. And we were in a situation where we refused to come to you. We thank you, God, for your grace that overcame our refusal, that overcame our straying, that overcame our inability, and that sought us out and saved us. And Lord, we trust that if you are the one who did this, you will keep your promise and keep us. Keep us desiring and having an appetite for our Savior, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.